At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, All Things New, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. This morning, we're continuing our series, All Things New. I'm going to read uh, Revelation 19, 11 through 16, and then pray over our time in the Word, and we'll kind of jump into it and unpack some things together. So, hear the Word of the Lord. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, even as we hear your word this morning, we stop and marvel at the intense picture that we get here of the return of Christ. We're thankful that you are a God of glory and majesty, that not even our minds can fully comprehend your beauty or power and the totality of who you are. And yet, God, what we ask for this morning as we come to your word is a fresh glimpse of your majesty, of your glory, of the glory of Christ Jesus, our resurrected Savior and Lord. So would you come, Holy Spirit, and by your word, would you engage our minds and our hearts? Would you bring us fresh images and fresh understandings? Would you enliven our imaginations and even our spiritual perceptions this morning? Would you awaken our hearts to see you in new ways so that we might respond with worship, with praise, with adoration, with faithfulness and obedience? So God, I pray, come, anoint this time in your word, not for my glory or the glory of any person here, but for the glory of Christ Jesus. What is of the flesh, please let it fall away and remain. But what is of the spirit, may it quicken us, may it empower us, may it move us towards you. So we invite you to do that work now in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. What you look to when the pressure is on really matters. My boys, a few years back, both of them um, spent some time uh, 
doing competitive rock climbing. So they were part of a rock climbing team back in our home and, and then were part of one when we moved here. And one of the things that they learned when they were competitive rock climbers was the power of visualization. Visualization and the practice of seeing the route, seeing the holds, and looking and visualizing where you were going was vitally important when they would go to compete. If you ever get the chance to go to a rock climbing competition, they're kind of wild. Uh, oftentimes what they'll do is the competitors all have to remain isolated in a corner of the gym away from all the routes and all the, all the holds. And then they get brought out one by one to do the series of routes that they have to compete. And essentially they're brought out, they have to keep their backs to the route behind them until their time starts. And then as soon as their time starts, they get four minutes, this is in one of the aspects of climbing, they get four minutes to try to climb and solve the route. What's interesting is oftentimes as soon as they get their time started, what you'll see good climbers do is they'll turn around, I'll turn and face you, so imagine you know, if you're the wall, they'll turn around and the first thing they do is they'll step back from the wall and they'll visualize the route. They'll, they'll look to see how does it end? Where does this hole go? How does it move? You'll actually see them sometimes close their eyes. They're moving their head. They like look crazy. You're like, what are you, what are you doing? They're like, you're like trying to, but, but they're trying to figure out where they need to go because they know once they get onto the wall, it's not as easy to see where they need to go. And if they don't have a visual of the route towards the end, they won't know the right move. They can get stuck. I remember one competition we went, my oldest son was competing and he was on his last route. And if he made this route, he would compete for the next stage. I think he was in sectionals and he would get to divisionals. And all he had to do was get to one spot on the final route. And there was a hold right on a, a blind spot around the wall that he couldn't see. And he hadn't visualized the route well. And so he's kind of in a stuck position and he's trying to find this route. And one of the things you don't know about rock climbing competitions that's the worst is parents aren't allowed to say anything. You, you, all you could say is like, Go, buddy. Like, that's it. Like, you can't give any information. You can't provide. You can be like, you can't be like, move your hand to the right. So my wife and I are standing there watching him like, oh, please find it. Please find it. Please find it. He just never found it. It was so, oh, it was so disappointing. But visualization is important because when the pressure's on, you got to know where to go. You, you got to know what to do. Having a vision of the end informs the decisions that you make in the present. Welcome to the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John gets a vision of the end of all things, and he writes it down in a letter to seven churches to help encourage them to say, hey, this is what's coming. Here's the end of the route. Let this inform how you live now, how you actually follow the way of Jesus now. Because here's the thing, if you're going to be follower, a follower of Jesus you're going to face all sorts of pressure and opposition. That's true for anyone who chooses to follow Jesus anywhere, whether that's 2,000 years ago in a city in modern-day Turkey or whether that's today in Farmington Hills. If you're going to follow the way of Jesus, you're going to face pressure and opposition because the very essence of our world and culture stands against God and his ways. I was reading a commentary this week on the book of Revelation, and the authors asked what I thought was a very interesting question related to our own following of Jesus in the book. They asked this. They say, how does one live in a world that is anti-God? 
devoted to opulence, consistently opposed to the way of Jesus, full of itself and intent on being impressive, protected with the might of its militarism, aiming to become the international power, living on the precipice of constant internal betrayals, driven by economic exploitation of anyone and everyone, structured into a mysterious hierarchical system of power and honor, and at the bottom of it all, driven by arrogance and ambition. Now, if you listen to that and thought, wait, what's he talking about there? That's kind of the point. The point of Revelation is a letter to people who find themselves trying to live out the truth of Christ in a world that's radically opposed to its values and to its ways. We all face pressure. We all face opposition. But the question is, what do you look to when you feel the pressure of the world closing in? What visualization do you have of what's to come to inform you and how to make your choices in following the path of Jesus now. Today, John's going to invite us in this next section of Revelation that we're going to look at to have two visualizations, two pictures, two images in our heads that can help to both inform and empower us who are seeking to follow Jesus in the present despite the pressure and opposition that we face. So, we're going to look this morning at John's depiction of the return of Jesus in Revelation 19, 11 through 21. Now, in order to understand a little bit of what John's going to unpack here and the visualization that he's going to give you, you've got to kind of understand a couple things out of the book. So we are in this series looking at the last four chapters of Revelation. We're looking at the end of the book and the end of the story. But in order to understand a bit of the end, you've got to understand a little bit of the flow of Revelation. So let me catch you up just on a couple things real quick. Like I said, Revelation is written by the Apostle John to a series of seven churches that were found all in the western side of what is modern Turkey. And he writes this book to empower them, to encourage them, to motivate them. And so the first part of the book, Jesus speaks directly to these churches, essentially saying, hey, there's some things you're doing well, and there's some things you're not doing so well. And he really wants to encourage them towards faithful obedience to his way in light of how they are living. And then in chapter four, all the way through the end of the book, he unpacks a series of revealings, essentially a revelation of what is to come. But the way he writes, he kind of shifts in the genre of the letter. He uses a style of writing called apocalyptic literature. Now, apocalyptic literature can be tricky because apocalyptic literature is a prophetic way of writing which utilizes a lot of symbols and a lot of symbolism and a lot of imagery from the Old Testament to convey deep spiritual meanings and realities. It's why if you ever sit down and read through the book of Revelation, you're like, what is going on? This like sounds like a fantasy novel, not like a letter to people, right? And it can feel a little bit that way because it's a certain style. It's meant to both be timely and timeless in its writing. It, it uses a lot of symbols, and it kind of pulls back the layers of history to reveal deeper truths and realities. One of the things that John does in the book of Revelation is he seeks to show that Christians face pressure and opposition in the world because what is behind the nations and powers of the world are actually deeper enemies that stand opposed to God and his ways. 
The book of Revelation actually highlights three key enemies of God, which are behind the power entities of our world in every nation and every place. And I want you to see these because they're important for what we're going to look at today in Revelation 19. The first enemy that John unpacks in the book of Revelation is called the dragon. The dragon is the arch nemesis of God, of his kingdom, and of his people. He's the serpent of old, seen all the way in Genesis 3. He's referred to as the Satan or the devil, which is the accuser. He's the one behind everything and behind the evil in our world that seeks to pressure us away from following Jesus and stands in opposition to his kingdom. And you see the dragon constantly coming against God's people in the book. The second enemy that you see in the book of Revelation is known as the beast of the sea. The beast of the sea is the power of authority or rule in our rule, in our world. It's a symbol of empire and the power structures that run the nations. In John's day, the beast of the sea is Rome and the Roman Empire. That's the original context of the letter. But the beast of the sea actually stands for all powers and rule and empires that govern the nations against the way of God. It's the authority in our world that comes against God and is under the rule of the dragon. The second enemy, or the third enemy, I'm sorry, that we see in the book is the beast of the land. This is the power of propaganda or false religion in our world. For every false rule, there's a false propaganda, there's a false belief system underneath that propagates the authority and power of that rule. This power, this beast is referred into the book as the false prophet or the high priest or the antichrist, if you've heard that term, right? It's, it's the false religions and beliefs of our world that seek to deceive people into following the way of the first beast and worshiping its power under the rule of the dragon. You tracking with me here? So he uses all of this symbolism and language to help you see the reality that you're living is not as simple as you think it is. The nations and powers that govern our world, they're actually connected with deeper, more deep spiritual enemies that are seeking to oppose God. It's why our world never gets better. It's why we still struggle with the same thing. 5,000 years, 6,000 years of human history, same cycle, same injustices, same problem, better technology, same issues. Because the enemies are still coming against God. The context then and the symbol for the context that John uses in the book for how these spiritual powers rule and reign over people in the book is referred to as Babylon. Babylon is a city. It's an ancient city. It was an ancient city that was opposed to the nation of Israel. But it actually is more than that. It's a symbol for the rules and authorities that are contrary to God and his ways. Again, in John's day, Babylon is embodied in the Roman Empire. But Babylon is more than that. It's those places, those contexts, those nations, those empires who are not under the rule of God. The enemies and Babylon are why Christians face the pressure and persecution and opposition that we do in all contexts across history. It's our biggest problem, and, and it creates our biggest challenges. In fact, one commentator says this about Babylon. It says, the biggest problem facing the seven churches was Babylon. And the biggest problem we still face in our church today is Babylon. 
Babylon is past. It is now. It is tomorrow. It is future as well. But it is the only future because Babylon is always. There's always a context. Every Christian in across the last 2,000 years of Christian history in every context feels the weight of Babylon. Babylon seeks to pull us away from the way and the values of the kingdom and toward the way of the values of the world. Be clear, in the context of the book of Revelation, there is no nation exempt from being under the guise of Babylon and seeking to deceive us away from the way of the kingdom. Try to faithfully follow Jesus the best you can in even the context of our society and culture. At some point, you're going to find opposition. At some point, you're going to find the pressure that says, ah, not, not, can't go that far. Or you'll find the deception that says, that's not the truth, this is. Babylon is everywhere and Babylon is always. The book of Revelation is written to say, here's how you live faithful to the king and the kingdom in the midst of Babylon. If you were to have a simple message for the book of Revelation, it might simply be this. The book is written as an encouragement not to follow the way of dragon, the dragon in Babylon, but instead live for the way of the land and the new Jerusalem that is to come. That's what you're going to see in these weeks as we unpack these last few chapters. And to help us do that, what John is doing is filling our minds with visions, with images. He, he wants us to visualize the end so we'll be motivated to know how to live in the present. And today, he wants to fill your mind with the image of the return of Jesus to help you see how you can live faithful to him now. And as he depicts the return of Christ, he's going to invite you to see two things that are key in that return. The first thing that he wants you to see is to see the victorious king. He wants you to see Jesus for who he is in his return, right? Look, look what he says in verse 11. We'll unpack this section together. He says, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. Right, that phrase, then I saw, it's utilized throughout the book and it's key. It's, it's an invitation for John, from John for you to see a different and truer reality, right? Here's that visualization piece. What are you visualizing about what is to come? This is an invitation to see something different. What does he see? Well, he sees a white horse and a rider. And in that, he sees two things. First, he sees who the rider is. And he laces this with a ton of symbolism. So let me unpack some of this for you. He says, behold, I saw a white horse. White, white horses were symbols of victory in that day. A conquering king would ride into a city on a white horse. It was that symbol of victory. So what's being pictured here is that final victory of Jesus, right? And, and we know it's Jesus because of the very next phrase. He says, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, now, these words are given directly about Jesus in Revelation 3, 14. They're Old Testament words. And what they mean is, this is the one who God is working his faithfulness to his covenant through and who is the true messianic king, right? Jesus being faithful and true means God is going to fulfill his promises through him and he's actually the true king that God has promised to work his salvation through so he says, I see this writer, the one called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. The reason that this writer, Jesus is returning, has a purpose. 
He's coming to bring judgment and to make war against the enemies of God, those forces that have stood opposed to him. He continues, his eyes are like the flames of fire, a symbol of the purifying and all-knowing eyes of God. For this rider, nothing is hidden from his gaze. On his head are many diadems. That's a funny word for crowns, but it's specific. It's a crown of authority or rule. Earlier in the book, we see the beast and the dragon. They have diadems. They have certain rule and authority. But this one is pictured with many diadems showing his ultimate rule and ultimate authority that he has. It says that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He has a name that cannot be fully grasped. In the original, in the day that this letter was written, to name something or someone is to have authority over it, right? That's why parents, when you have a kid, the first thing you do is name them, right? You're, you're, you not only brought them into this world, right? You're their authority over them. It's the same thing. But here's the difference. This name is hidden. No one knows the name of this writer. Why? Because no one has authority over him. No one has the ability to name him. He has ultimate authority because only he knows his name. He has a robe dipped in blood. This is an image taken from the Old Testament in Isaiah 63, where there's a symbolic picture of the messianic king coming in conflict and bringing victory over the hostile enemies that stand against him and his kingdom. So the image of a robe dipped in blood is just meant to be the image of a victorious warrior in battle. Again, it aligns with the picture that John is painting here. And his name, and the name by which he is called, is the Word of God. In one sense, Jesus is the eternal word. Think John 1.1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. But that's not entirely the image here. There's also the promised word of judgment that is to come. That is that God will bring his judgment against the world, against sin and against evil by his word. And so Jesus is pictured as the authoritative word of God, the embodiment of the gospel who brings judgment against sin and evil. Who's with him? The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. So with this conquering king comes his armies. And here we have a picture of the risen and victorious saints along with God's angelic warriors. And they're coming not to do battle, but to share in his victory. Right? Notice how they're dressed. They're not dressed in battle gear. They're dressed in white. You don't go into battle in white. Listen, even I know that, right? Hey, it's Memorial Day. We can wear white now. Great. Uh, but no, you don't do that, right? You, you go into battle in battle clothes. But that's not how they're coming. They're coming in white on white horses. They're coming to share in his victory. Not only does John want you to see who he is in his power, in his authority, in his purpose. He wants you to see what he does. Look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. The only weapon that's pictured in this conquering warrior is a sword from his mouth, not from his side, but from his mouth. It's a visual picture that he comes to judge and defeat God's enemy, not by physical violence, but by declaring God's just judgment against them. His authority comes from his word, 
He rules with an iron rod and treads the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Again, here we have symbols here of judgment on evil. God had promised to come and defeat his enemies, to bring an end to sin and evil, those things that stand opposed to his good world, and to bring his righteous judgment against them. And that's what Christ is pictured as coming to do, to rid the world of that which is evil and the enemies that stand against God. And then finally, the last phrase and kind of the chief one, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here we find the ultimate title of authority. That there is not one rule or authority or power or claim to power in our world that he is not over. He is above all others. And so John gives us this list of visuals because ultimately all of these images work together to picture Jesus as the conquering, victorious warrior king who is returning to earth to do what God promised to do, to defeat God's enemies and to judge all who stand opposed to God and his true and final kingdom. It's a picture of power and victory. And it's meant to be a picture of how we think of Jesus. How do you think of Jesus? Like, if I were to ask you, like, when you pray or when you think about Jesus or when you get, like, how do you, how do you think of him? What, what images fill your mind of Jesus? Is it like those, like, Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt pictures? Is it, is it like Jesus from The Chosen? Is the, is the primary image of Jesus that you have, that I think many people have, of kind of a meek, mild guy who walks around in sandals with some flowing hair and a nice robe? Those aren't bad images. I mean, we see Jesus in his humility and in his incarnation as gentle and lowly. That's the description he gives himself. But that isn't the only images we have. We also have the images of the resurrected Jesus, Jesus in power and might, Jesus the victorious warrior who will put a final end to evil and salvation. And if we're to have a healthy discipleship and following of Jesus, we have to have both images because they picture fully who he is as both our savior, the one who can empathize with our weaknesses, the one who became human like us and took on flesh for us, to save us, dying for us, and Lord, the one resurrected in power at the right hand of the Father, the one who said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If you're going to fight the battle against Babylon, you've got to have a good medic and a good sergeant. And Jesus is both. He is your medic to bind up your wounds, to help you in your brokenness, to bring healing to your life, He's the one we go to with our hurts and in the times and our sorrows. But he is also our sergeant. And I love every good war movie with a good sergeant who motivates his soldiers and say, you follow me, I got this, we're taking this hill. And that's Jesus too. Because sometimes you need in your discipleship a healthy kick in the butt that says, hey, get it together and let's go. He's both. And you need both. You need the visualization of Jesus who cares for you and loves you and binds you and Jesus who leads you 
in victory. And that's what John wants you to see. Yeah, the battle against Babylon and the pressure and powers of the world is hard, but you've got a king who's coming. And when he comes, he's coming in power to do some business against the enemies that you face. But he not only wants you to see Jesus as a victorious king, he also wants you to see the battle that he's bringing, what what he's going to do in this point of his return. See where the end is heading. Again, it informs the route now. As he comes, he comes to make war against God's enemies and those that side with him. And so John gives us this visual image of the war that is to come. And as he does, he kind of gives two parts to this battle and to helping see the victorious battle. The, The first part he wants you to see that even before the battle begins, the end has already been declared. The end has already been declared. Look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Now, that's a fairly gruesome image, but remember, this is symbolism, And the symbol that it's painting here is actually, it's taken from Ezekiel 39, this section. And in Ezekiel 39, it's a prophetic passage about God's total defeat of his enemies. So so what John is helping you to see, right? I saw, this is what I saw. What you see is when Jesus comes, he's bringing the end to God's enemies. There's an invitation given here. There was an invitation given before, we looked at it last week, an invitation to join at the marriage supper of the Lamb where God's people are joined together. This is a different invitation. This recognizes when Jesus comes, he's bringing judgment against evil. And when he does, he will bring total annihilation against those evil earthly powers that stand against him and his kingdom. That's the symbol. It's a symbol here of total, complete victory. But what we need to see And what you need to see, again, to encourage and empower you, is that even before the battle begins, the end has already been declared. Right? Think of, um, maybe think of it like this. This is Jesus' power. Imagine if you got an invitation, you went home today, you got an invitation in your email box from the Detroit Lions, and they said, hey, Super Bowl parade, February 17th. You're like, well, that's presumptuous, Right? Like, I'm not even sure, you know, I mean, I've got hope for the Lions this year. I'm pumped, but like, we're already getting the invitation to the Super Bowl parade. Like, that seems a little arrogant, right? Unless you know you're going to win. So Jesus is sovereign to help you see you've already been invited to the victory. Because it's already done. It's already declared. This is a statement of his authority and his sovereignty. The end has already been determined. Therefore, be motivated in the present. I think I'd cheer for the Lions a little differently if I knew we had the Super Bowl in sight. Maybe I'd be less frustrated when we lost. So he wants you to see the end in the battle. But then he also wants you to see the battle. He he wants you to see what he's doing in this moment. So look again, verse 19, here's the second part of what he sees. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So he's, he's actually re, re, uh, 
capitulating here an earlier statement in Revelation. In Revelation 16, we get an image of the three enemies of God, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, sending out false spirits into the world to gather the kings, the authorities of the earth, to gather to come against God in battle. And and that's been happening. And so John brings that back up to say, hey, the world is being gathered against the king and against his return. But look what happens as they do. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the west were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So what John wants you to see is that as Jesus returns... Two things happen. One, he defeats the power that is behind these armies. The beast, the two beasts, the power and rule and authority in our world that stands against God and his kingdom, the false prophet and deceptions and propaganda that seek to deceive the nations away from God, they are defeated by Christ in the end, and they receive their just punishment, thrown into the lake of fire, the eternal place of punishment for God's enemies. John wants you to see the power and propaganda that stands against God's people and God's kingdom are decisively eliminated at Jesus' return. Now, the dragon that's behind them, he's going to get dealt with in a different scene. But what John first wants you to see is, listen, you face a ton of pressure in following Jesus. You, You face a lot of lies. You face authority that comes against you fully living out his kingdom here on earth. And John wants you to say, continue resisting those powers and those lies because at the end, they will be dealt with. They will be eliminated. Finally, the last thing he wants you to see is that Jesus defeats those earthly powers that sided with those images, with those enemies, I'm sorry. Again, the image can be startling because of the language that's used. But remember, this isn't physical slaying. That's not the image here. This is the sword of his word bringing the final judgment against his enemies. That by his word, he ends even the earthly forces that stand against him. And the image of the birds is just meant to reinforce their final and full defeat. But as John paints this picture, I I think there's two things that he wants you to notice here. One, notice the decisiveness of Jesus's victory. Who doesn't feel the pangs and pressure of what it means to follow Jesus in our world? And if you read through the book of Revelation, you feel that tension. You feel the tension of a world that's held captive by these powers. You feel the longing of the martyrs who say, when will justice come? When will these evil forces and these enemies of God be dealt with? This has been the cry of God's people for a long time. And what we see is these great powers that we think are so mighty, so strong, so influential in our world, they are dealt with in the matter of five verses where Jesus barely does anything except show up on the scene and speak. You want to talk about power? There's no power struggle. There's no prolonged battle of good and evil. There's just a a decisive victory by a victorious king. He shows up, evil's done. So he wants you to see the power of Jesus and the victory that comes. The second thing he wants you to notice, notice who's not fighting. Who's not fighting? God's people. We're not fighting a war here. We're not coming in battle. 
We're dressed in white clothes, showing up to just receive the victory that our king has already won by his word and by his authority. John wants you to see the battle that you face and the end of it. It's not dependent on you. It's dependent on Jesus. And he's going to bring that victory. That's why you can stay faithful to him in the present. You might struggle now, but there's a day where that struggle will end, not because you're victorious, because he's victorious. Somebody's got to say amen to that. Because all of this, what John wants you to see is that in the end, Jesus will defeat his enemies. He will. It's done. And he wants you to see that. He wants that visualization to fill your mind so that you see the end, so it empowers your choices and route now. Because the pressure of the world comes along and it says, yeah, compromise here. You, you don't have to be that radical. Like you can follow Jesus, just don't put in any of our faces. Or it says, or it says buy into our values. You can have Jesus and some of this and some of what the world has to offer and something on the side. And what John wants you to see is, no, 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 no. The picture and visual that you need to have at the end is Jesus is going to come and he's going to decisively and finally defeat those enemies. And when you see that, you're not going to want to follow Babylon now. You're not going to walk the way of the dragon now. You're not going to want to submit to the mark of the beast now. You're not going to buy into the lies of the false prophet and false religion now. Why? Because they're defeated and no one wants to follow a loser. Right? You, you don't sign up to go to the game to be like, I hope my team loses. I love to watch when they lose. No. You go because you, you want victory and the joy and spoil of victory. And why John wants to help you see that Jesus is the one who brings the final victory is that you won't follow the losers of Babylon and the dragon and the beasts. Because if you listen, you and I, we're still in the battle right now. This is a picture of the end. We live in the already not yet tension of Jesus has won his victory in his death and resurrection, but he has not brought it to its fullness until his return, which means we're still in a battle against those enemies. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in heavenly places. We got a spiritual fight now to follow the way of the lamb, not follow the way of the dragon. But what John's trying to come along and say is, see the end when the dragon's defeated, when the beasts are defeated? Because when you see that, it will help you make the choices now to not follow them. No one wants to follow a defeated enemy. Maybe put it in this context, just, just to help me, I'll close with this, just to help you maybe kind of think of it in a different way. Imagine if you could pop into the characters of your favorite movie and share with them the ending before it happened, right? So I was just thinking about that. Like, think of, um, think of Star Wars. Don't you ever wish you could just like go into the Death Star and tell some of those stormtroopers, hey, do you know what's about to happen like, I'm always amazed at, like, like, I kind of feel a little bit bad for them. And I'm always amazed at their willingness to kind of go along with, like, the evil. Like, there's that scene where Darth Vader just, like, chokes the dude out on the table and then just turns to the next guy. I'm like, that's pretty hideous. I think at that point I'd be like, I'm out, not signing up for that. But, but they're so deceived by the power that they're so in fear that they're trapped 
because they think, oh, this, this is the side that wins. I've got to submit. They've got all the power. But, but imagine, if you, imagine if you could just go into the Death Star. Which is, I mean, I know. I just follow me, right? But imagine you could go up to one of those stormtroopers and one of those generals. You could say, hey, listen, listen, at, at the end of this thing, this thing actually gets blown up, like totally demolished. You might want to get off this train because it's headed for destruction. Right? Don't, don't you think that change how they would operate? Or, or imagine if you could go to the Rebel Alliance and say, hey, listen, you found the guy. Like, he's going to be the guy that puts those two whatever things right in and blows the whole thing up. Like, you've got this. Hang on. Don't give up. We got the end. Well, we get the privilege of knowing the end of Star Wars. They don't. What John is trying to say is, I'm giving you the privilege of seeing the end. Hear the words. Jesus is going to show up, and when he does, he is going to defeat God's enemies. Like Death Star annihilated, blown up, dead. That's what's coming. So get off the train, because those powers aren't winning at the end. Those powers, they might seem like they have authority right now. They might seem like you've got to submit to them right now. They might seem like you have to go along with the flow right now. But John's trying to say, no, you don't, because we found the guy. And when the guy shows up, all those powers that stand against God's kingdom, they're nothing compared to him. And if you begin to see that ending, it changes the way you live now. It either gets you off the train and says, I'm not following the dragon. I'm following the victorious king. Or it motivates you that are following the king to say, stay faithful, stay true, keep walking the path. The question you have to ask is, what image fills your mind? What do you imagine about Jesus in his return? Because what you imagine about the end informs the choices you make now and the route you choose now. My prayer is that we'd all be full of an imagination of the victorious king and the victorious battle that he will bring. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful, so grateful that you would be kind enough, loving enough to reveal to us the truth of what is to come. And how incredible that we get a glimpse of this. How motivating and stirring it is. And so, God, I just pray out of what you've revealed to us that you, you would let this truth, this, this just vision of Jesus and his return and his power and his authority, I pray right now that you would let it sink deep into our souls. And from there, would you fill our mind's eye with just this picture of his glory and his might, so much so that in this place we would bow before him and say, man, I want to follow that king. I want to follow that warrior. I want to share in that victory. But I pray that it just wouldn't be true now. I, I pray that that's true tomorrow when we've got to make choices at our job or at school or about how we spend our money or what we fill our minds with or what temptations we get from the world to compromise. I pray at that moment you'd fill our minds with the truth of Jesus and the victory that's to come. Holy Spirit, that you would empower us towards faithfulness. So would you start a work now, even in our hearts? We all need it that'll continue to motivate us in our discipleship even this week. As we give you this time, even as we sing, just longing for your return, Holy Spirit, would you come, take the truth of God's word, make it alive in our hearts, I pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name. 
Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.